Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. My name is Shadi Nabhan, and I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance at Keras Life Sciences. The Precision Oncology Alliance is a large research collaborative effort between Keras and various academic and community institutions across the country dedicated to precision oncology research, biomarker-driven research. We are all attempting to answer questions that have significant impact, positive impact on the outcomes of patients with cancer. Today, I am hosting Dr. Marcus Neubauer, Chief Medical Officer of the U.S. Oncology Network. Marcus has a long-standing history in medicine, in oncology, spanning work in community setting as well as academic setting. But I really wanted to have Marcus on so we could talk a little bit about precision oncology specifically in the community setting. What are the challenges of wider adoption of precision oncology in the community setting? What are the opportunities and where really, where is precision oncology evolving into or migrating towards in the community oncology setting? No one better than Dr. Marcus Neubauer will be able to answer these important questions. The answers to these questions will have significant impact on patient care and how patients will be cared for in the community setting. At the end of the day, we are all striving to provide patients with the best care possible. What that means is that this requires delivering the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And that's really the essence of precision oncology. So, I hope you enjoy what you are going to hear from Dr. Marcus Neubauer. Without further ado, welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Well, it's really my pleasure to host today Dr. Marcus Neubauer, Chief Medical Officer of the U.S. Oncology Network. Uh, I have had the pleasure of meeting Marcus a couple of times. We uh, crossed paths, and I've always admired all of the amazing work that he does. And he's going to spend some time with us today talking about his role, what he does, and more, more a focus on precision oncology and, and all of that good stuff. Marcus, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute. Appreciate your time. So for the few, for the couple of people who don't know you, because everybody <laughs> else knows you, maybe a little bit about you and, uh, you know, how did you, like, tell us a little bit about career-wise, how do you end up uh, where you are right now? Oh, gosh. Well, thanks, Chadi. Thanks for having me and, and showing an interest in, in me. So I appreciate that. Like you, I am a medical oncologist. I started in practice a long time ago, all the way back to 1993, in a private practice in Kansas City and uh, had a long journey there, actually worked with that practice until 2011. Our practice actually made a decision to go out of our arrangement with what was then the U.S. Oncology Network and join the University of Kansas. So we became uh, physicians working at an academic institution. And frankly, uh, for me, that had, had, had been suboptimal. Uh, I really enjoyed being in community practice and being more in charge and, and being part of uh, our practice's vision and direction and our ability to uh, provide care for patients in the community. Uh, so I did that for about two years, and then I went back to U.S. Oncology, 
Ecology, which is now part of McKesson and joined McKesson in 2013 and have worked on a number of initiatives. I've had a strong interest in value-based care and, and ushering our practices through this transition away from uh, volume towards value. Uh, in 2018, I became the chief medical officer for the U.S. Oncology Network, and uh, th- there's a lot of things I could focus on to to prioritize. Uh, but you 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 probably know this. You you have to pick two or three or four things. You can't do a hundred things. So one of the things I took an interest in because I felt the need for it, and and I felt like we uh, had a lot of opportunity across the network was in this field of precision medicine, which is a very broad. And, and can mean a lot of things. But in the oncology space, it's really about learning about mutations that, that, that cause cancer and um, whether or not there are treatment opportunities based on those mutations or series of mutations. And as you know, it is highly complex. There's all sorts of ways that uh, DNA can mutate and whether it, it means something or not. Sometimes it means that uh, there can be um, sensitivity. Sometimes it means there can be resistance. Sometimes it's unclear what it means. And this is, uh, and then you have hereditary mutations and you have acquired mutations and it's a very, very complex field. And there's a lot of opportunity to do better and to learn more about patients through molecular profiling. So that is a uh, short sort of a preview of my journey and why I'm interested in precision medicine. So Marcus, are you seeing patients now or your time doesn't allow? Uh, the latter. I really decided it was two years ago, the summer of 2018, that I, I could not do both. I could not see patients even in a limited capacity because the administrative duties uh, were such that I, that I couldn't give attention to uh, cancer patients. And as you know, uh, these are not infrequent visits and not small problems. And so what I found was for about five years, I worked a clinic one day a week, and I could make it happen, but even then, it was hard to only be in clinic one day a week. And so it worked, but I got to the point where I couldn't even do that, and then it didn't make sense. So I'm completely in an administrative, executive leadership role, whatever you want to call it. But no, I no longer see Yeah, patients. no, I totally understand. And, yeah. you know, and, and I asked the question because you, you started your practice in 1993. Right. And it's it's fascinating how things have changed. I mean, if, if you know, I mean, 1993, probably no patient with lung cancer with metastatic disease was getting any treatment. I mean, you would refer patients to hospice and, and look where we are right now in 2020. I mean, when you look back, I mean, you know, it, it must really be a fascinating journey where we are right now. Yeah, that's right. And I would say we did treat people in 1993 with lung cancer, but they had they were those that were particularly fit because the treatment was platinum based right. back then, which had a, it had quite a bit of toxicity. So not every patient, as you know, many lung cancer patients are relatively frail. They have uh, underlying lung disease. They have other conditions. And so I would say that we had to be more selective uh, about who we treated back then. And when we did treat patients, uh, it typically was quite toxic and, frankly, not very effective. Then we started to have at our disposal some additional chemotherapy drugs, the taxanes, gemcitabine, uh, which uh, helped a little bit. But those were very, very small increments, the, the, the really not changing the, the overall way that we treat lung cancer. And I think it really was the first mutation that that, that was 
substantial as EGFR mutation that, that we learned about probably, you would know this better than I did, probably about 15 years ago was when we first learned about EGFR. And that really was a, uh, a game changer. In fact, what's really interesting is the drug that we first used, we, we knew it was an inhibitor of EGFR. It was Arisa and then Tarceva. But in the patients we used it first off, we didn't know they had mutations. Yeah, We just gave it to, to really people with lung cancer. And there were some that actually did well and many who, did, who had no effect. And then we started learning that we actually could identify the EGFR mutation and direct these drugs for that mutation. And it worked quite well. And there's all sorts of stories and sort of sort of discoveries in this journey. And that's just one mutation. We also learned that uh, lung cancer can develop resistance to certain drugs over time, a new mutation that confers resistance, another part of the story. So it's, uh, it's dynamic. It's really fascinating when just listening to your career, you've worked in a community practice, you've worked in an academic practice, you've worked in a larger than community practice, and now obviously you have an executive administrative role. When we talk about precision oncology, Marcus, do you think that all of these various types of people, community, academia, executive, have the same definition? Like, do you think we are all saying the same language? How would you define it? And do you think people interpret it differently? Yeah, my answer is yes and no. I think I'll start with no, because there is huge variability in how uh, precision medicine is dealt with by certain physicians, certain patient interests, there's pathologists who are involved, and obviously there are laboratories that are that are conducting these advanced molecular tests. So there's lots of variables, lots of stakeholders, and, and lots of variation across the nation in how precision medicine and molecular testing is conducted. On the other hand, I think all of the stakeholders agree that this is advanced information, helpful information, necessary information for making decisions, very important in identifying patients for clinical trials for new drug developments. I think we all agree about that, whether it's academic or community or or U.S. oncology, but there's still, and I think this is why there's so much opportunity to be more deliberate and and, and more organized around precision medicine, because there's wide variability in how it's addressed. One of the things I'm always curious about with precision oncology across various tumor types, there's so much that's happening all the time. And I'll be the first to admit on the air, for the record, that sometimes it's hard to keep up. I mean, it's just hard to keep up. How do you ensure, I guess, that there is the proper dissemination of information across a large network where where, where all of the physicians in the network uh, are aware of what's going on. Help me understand how how is this really disseminated, if any? I, I'm not really sure if it yeah. if it's on a local practice level or a large network. But the educational part seems to me is an important piece, and I don't know how it's accomplished. Yeah. So the the sort of uh, sort of the lowest level of sophistication is physicians just have to figure it out. You know, they've got to get into up to date. They've got to get into uh, uh, the, the literature. They may Google something. I mean, there's lots of websites, obviously, that are helpful in, in learning quickly on the fly about what a mutation means and what's the incidence and what are the possible targeted agents. So that's kind of at the basic level where the physician just has to. I can remember there was a time when I was in practice where I felt that about 
10% of the time I had to read up on a patient before I made a treatment because it was so sort of simple as far as choices go. Lung cancer was lung cancer was lung cancer. It wasn't 20 different things, for example. And so you pretty much, you'd read periodically when you needed to learn or, or read up on something. But now you almost have to do some preparation for, for almost any patient that you see because there may be um, a, a molecular profile and report that you have to review. And almost always there is something on that report that is a bit unclear or something that you don't know a lot about. So there's so much more information that you have to know and that you have to use to make a decision that it is really, really difficult to keep up, even if you do it the old-fashioned way by just trying to keep reading as, as new patients come in or, or patients who you have have a new problem. So how can we assist? And when I say we, I'm not now talking about my job at U.S. Oncology, which is to provide support for our practices in being able to keep up. And the, the way that you typically go after this is through technology and try to get assistance within the workflow. So within the electronic medical record and building pathways and guidelines and order sets. So it is, it flows and, and, and you're, you're sort of led in the direction of what you need to order. And we are currently doing this. Uh, Keras is one of our partners uh, and we've been working a lot with Keras in getting uh, laboratory test results returned electronically to reduce turnaround time and also getting the data that's generated from uh, Keras broad molecular test inserted directly electronically into our EMR. So we develop a, a searchable database, which is also very helpful, particularly for those physicians who are interested in clinical trials and searching and trying to identify patients with rare mutations. So long-winded answer, what I'm really telling you is you have to have a, a lot of technology support to keep physicians up to date and not rely on them to have to sort of learn everything all the time. Me and you agree that moving forward, I think the future, if any, if any, is going to, I mean, I would propose there will be more applications for precision oncology and sequencing, even more than what we are doing today. What are the barriers, in your opinion, Marcus, to broader implementation as well as adoption of either precision oncology or sequencing more in the community setting? Are there specific barriers that are more really specific to community versus academic setting? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I, first of all, your point about will, will we know more over time? Will we learn more? Will it expand? This field will always expand. I mean, we're, there's always going to be the next mutation we have not yet identified. And once we identify it, then you add it to your report and we, and, and, and the, the, the pharmaceutical industry tries to identify an agent that can target that. And then even if uh, we've learned every driver of, of cancer, there'll be new mutations that we didn't know about before. So this field will always expand and leads to probably the biggest barrier. And that is keeping up. You've already addressed that. If you can't entirely keep up, then there is a chance that you may overlook an opportunity to order a particular test. So it is, uh, uh, remains a barrier to j just having the right knowledge to order the right test for your patient. And that's why we feel like we can 
address that with, with technology assist, workflows, pathways, alerts. And uh, so that, but, but that's a barrier until you get all that worked out. I think that, uh, the, the, you know, still, uh, you know, the cost of a test and wh wh whether or not it'll get reimbursed, I think that's becoming more of a theoretical barrier, but it could be an issue that leads to a test not being done if somebody, if a patient is worried about costs or a physician feels that the tests they're ordering is too expensive or it may get declined. So that's a barrier. I think that uh, those are probably the the biggest barriers that, that, that exist today. And I, I think that it's just more about what tests to order and therefore maybe not getting the right test order that, that, that is the, the barrier that I think uh, we need to tackle first. You mentioned is, is uh, part of it due to uh, a difference in knowledge base between academic and community? I think the answer to that is yes, and I don't want to criticize my colleagues in community oncology, but they typically see every cancer. And so, you know, there is that much more they have to know, whereas academics, for the most part, see a very narrow field of disease. I did work part-time at an academic institution. I was only seeing uh, GI malignancies, colon, pancreas, and, and uh, stomach, esophageal. And it was much easier to remember all the rules around MSI testing, PDL1, BRCA mutations, uh, KRAS. Uh, that was for one, one area. And so when you're in the academic field, and, and also typically an academic, although community oncology physicians are very involved in research too, but if you're in academics, you're seeing a narrow category of diseases and you're involved in research, you are going to be a little bit more, I think, up to speed on what the exact sort of combination of, of mutations, gene alterations that you need to be thinking about compared to in the community setting. That's why I think in the community setting, it is even more important that we really provide these additional assists uh, through technology. I have to say, one of the things I really admire about U.S. oncology is your research network. I mean, I think really I have many colleagues in the lymphoma and the CLL um, that are part of your network and just leading unbelievable research efforts and, and uh, even extremely influential manuscripts at, at the top, top tier journals. So I, I, first of all, congratulations on just an amazing research network. Have you started incorporating precision oncology or sequencing technology and so forth into ongoing research or future research studies you're working on? Yeah, it definitely. And it's not like we, we, we invented that. I mean, a lot of this is driven by pharma because a lot of the new drugs that are being developed are targeted agents against uh, rarer, less common mutations, and certainly uh, immunotherapy, which is not necessarily targeted therapy, but, it's, but it's, it's therapy that still needs to be tested. We do a lot of immunotherapy uh, studies as well. But, but, but this is really where drug development is taking place. Uh, it, it's not very exciting for either the physicians or for patients to look at another sort of standard cytotoxic drug. We're looking at drugs that are specific to uh, cancer-causing, cancer-driving events. And, and so most clinical studies, or, or, or certainly a, an increasing number of clinical studies, are based, on, uh, are based around a mutation or something specific uh, that is uh, fairly narrow in its, in its inclusion. And so we, we are doing a lot more studies around targeted therapy driven partly by pharma, where drug development is going, 
driven by physicians who are interested in looking at very novel therapy, not sort of these tiny increments that I talked about that we did clinical research. I mean, I can remember clinical research 20 years ago, we would just take two drugs and match them up and then two more and then match them. And that's not really innovative. So um, yeah, the answer is yes. So put on your futuristic hat. I mean, you've been, you've been around the block for a while. <laughs> so you've been, you've been around, although you started in 93, you were probably 15 years old, right? I mean, oh, that's probably, well, yeah. But no, I mean, well, seriously, put, put, put on your futuristic hat. We're having this conversation five years from now. We're talking precision oncology. We're talking community oncology. How do you think the conversation would go? Or where do you see the future of precision oncology in the community setting? I, I think it'll be ubiquitous. I think that most people with cancer, probably even early stage cancer, at five years from now, will be getting molecular testing uh, because there may be some things that we can learn. There was just a study that was published uh, that shows that a uh, EGFR uh, agent, uh, osimertinib, actually can uh, prolong survival or decrease the chance of disease recurrence in people with resected early stage lung cancer. So I think we'll see more testing. Uh, I hope that we see more information exchange where data is shared more quickly, uh, turnaround time is faster, and action is being taken for patients optimally. In other words, some of these gaps, some of these barriers that we talked about no longer exist. But I think it's really going to be part of the sort of the evaluation for all cancer patients uh, five years from now. And and we we haven't talked much about uh, hereditary or germline mutations, but that's a whole other area that will continue to grow and we'll learn more. I mean, first we just knew about BRCA mutations. Then we learn about these, uh, these, these certain variants and these sort of these, uh, these variants, if you add them all up together, it, it, it increases risk. So there's a lot to be learned yet about risk of cancer. And maybe we'll even start checking profiles in more healthy people five years from now. So it's um, really open for all sorts of uh, future considerations. Well, this is great. And I know I took a lot of your time, um, Marcus. This was a very nice, broad overview about challenges, opportunities in the community setting. Any final thoughts before I let you go back, back to, to work? Well, I, I, I think you asked some very compelling questions. I think that uh, certainly cancer patients are very uh, interested in, in their, their own cancer profile. We have to remember that they're learning too and they talk and they communicate and many of them want this additional information. So uh, this is really- uh, Actually, uh, do, do you have a platform to teach your patients in your clinics? Like, do you do, you do like, uh, like, I don't know, videos, handouts, things like that or not yet? I think that is still pretty much left up to the practices and the providers, but that's an opportunity. I mean, there, there certainly could come a day when that could be much more organized and we have a lot more educational materials for patients too. But, but anyway, I think that, uh, we're, so we're certainly seeing interest from cancer patients, uh, an appropriate interest. And I think that we, you know, this is just an area that uh, is very exciting. And so thank you for letting me uh, uh, be a part of this conversation. And uh, um, maybe we can do it again in a year or two. It may be very different. Thank you so much, Marcus. Hopefully we'll do it sooner. Thank you. Thank you, Chadi. Appreciate it.
Okay, folks, thank you very much for listening and for joining me and Dr. Marcus Neubauer on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast discussing precision oncology in the community setting. I would love to hear from you how we are doing. Please send all feedback to cnabhan at kerisls.com and let us know how well we are doing. Don't forget to subscribe to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast rate the podcast, and write a brief review. Refer a colleague or a friend to listen to the podcast. We have a variety of topics focused on precision oncology. We have interviewed folks internally as well as externally, and our goal is to make sure that we bring in timely topics focused on this important particular specific topic that will help in patient care. Thank you for listening, and until next time. 